0: Well, this week we are starting into the book of Hebrews. And I'm so excited we're going to be back to a verse-by-verse study of one of these books of the Bible, one of these great books of the Bible. Uh, Hebrews is a favorite of mine. And I I want to tell you why it's a favorite of mine. If you you open a Bible to Hebrews, and uh, Danny read for us so lovely this morning, the very first few verses, but I just want to share with you why I love this book, or have come to love this book over the years, the things that have stood out to me, that have stuck with me as I read this great letter. So I'm going to share about seven or eight things just quickly that that I love about this book. And as we go through this study, there will be more things that I know that I love about this book, and that I hope you will as well. The first thing is what we read this morning. It is the supremacy of Jesus. The book of Hebrews is about that primarily. It is about the supremacy of Jesus over all things. How Jesus is greater than all things. Greater than all systems. Greater than all people. There is no one, there is nothing greater than Jesus Christ. And this book highlights that. Chapter 1 is all about that. Chapter 2 It talks about how He is the founder of our salvation. And one of the, the verses that has stood out to me in this is verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. This great Jesus, this great Jesus, God, the Word before He was in flesh, became flesh, took on flesh. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus is supreme over all things, including death. He is the conqueror. He is the one who has overcome and destroyed the one who has the power of death. And then in verse 17, of course, my favorite word shows up in here. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. We're going to see Jesus throughout this book as our great high priest. Then it says this a great high priest in the service of God, to make, anybody see that word? What's the word? Propitiation. What a wonderful word. Make propitiation for the sins of His people. Uh, In chapter 4, again, we're introduced to Jesus as the great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. In chapter 5 and 6, and then on through 7 and 8, going to unfo- it's going to unfold for us the shadows of the Old Testament. The shadows of the priesthood, the shadows of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, all these things were shadows of the great reality. And that reality is our supreme and wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, And so, we'll be on an adventure through those things. And then, in chapter 11, chapter 11, faith is defined and faith is modeled. Faith is defined and modeled. Many of you are familiar with that first verse of chapter 11. Faith is the evidence or the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet And so throughout that chapter, we'll be talking about faith. We'll be talking about the great heroes of the faith. And then in chapter 12, we're going to be looking at Jesus as our example of perseverance. As our example of the one who has persevered, this this passage um, has one of my favorite, favorite Passages that I have come to again and again in my walk with Christ. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us or clings to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him Endured the cross. Despised the shame. Endured the cross. And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him. That's what we'll be doing. Consider this Jesus. Consider this wonderful God. The Word made flesh. The Word dwelling among us. The Word living out that perfect life on our behalf living the life I could not live, dying the death I dare not die, and being raised again for my justification. Consider this Jesus, who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you do not grow weary in well-doing, for we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding our own blood in our fight against sin. Sin is serious business. Sin needs to be addressed in a serious way. Jesus, in liberating us, has not relieved us of a call to follow Him. And so we'll be considering Jesus through that chapter. And then in chapter 13, uh, again, one of my favorite passages in that chapter where uh, the word says, and let us um, offer up continually the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. And do not neglect to do good, and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. He's well pleased. That whole idea of our priesthood, that we are being built together as living stones into a spiritual house to offer sacrifices together to God that are well pleasing to Him. Let me just share one more passage and it's interesting or just good that it comes in this book because I think it highlights something so important for us. I had it marked but I don't know what I did with it. I'll tell you next week. Anyway, so we're going to watch a little video. It's an eight-minute video. It's an introduction to Hebrews. I found this and I thought this is great because I, it would take me 45, 50 minutes to say what this guy says in Eight minutes with a chart to boot, which we'll be putting into your hands. We'll, we'll give you a link to this video. We'll give you a link to the, uh, to the chart. It's a wonderful, wonderful introduction to the book of Hebrews. So we're going to show that to you. So this is an introduction to the book of Hebrews. Let's listen and learn. Here we go
1: The letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai where they received the Torah and they made a covenant with God where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories. And so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians. That's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First, there's a short introduction which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah, second with Moses and the Promised Land, third with priests and Melchizedek, And lastly, with the sacrifices in the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this. It's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author's saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the Son. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd. Like, why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, How remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die. In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5-7, through the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed and so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem and he appears in the stories about Abraham. We also find in Psalm 110 that the messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless, he's eternally available for his people, and so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God, so don't do that which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice, superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, this final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now, they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end a brief word of exhortation. (laughs) Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, Stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages, they're going to make you uncomfortable and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy, and that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about.
0: Isn't that good? That just gave you the a, a, a great overview. So we'll give you a we'll give you a link to uh, to that video, and uh, a, a, a JPEG of that particular. Uh, chart as well. It's a wonderful little tool to keep handy to kind of remind you where you are. My, my, my old brain kicked back in, and I'm glad it did because I remembered uh, that uh, verse. And that was the one, it's in Hebrews 4, where it says this. It says, "...for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce the dividing of soul and spirit." able to reveal the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. God's Word is His tool to penetrate deep into who we are. We don't don't read it just to gain the helpful information that we saw there on the screen, but we read it to say, Lord, give me a heart that loves You supremely. Give me a heart that sees you in your glory. Give me a heart that sees the big picture and the wonder of what you have done through history all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Help me to see your glory. Help me to find deep hope in you. So that's where we'll be, we'll be going. Not a long message on that today, just an introduction just an encouragement. What I'm going to ask you to do this week, if you would, is to read the book of Hebrews. And I'd like to just offer you a challenge. And it doesn't take long at all, but that would be that as we're going through this study, just read the book of Hebrews once a week. Now, I promise you it's not going to be a year-long study, so don't worry about uh, being uh, overly Hebrewed. In your Bible study, although worse things could happen to you. So it's not a bad thing. But uh, we're going to begin to read uh, through that book. And I just want to study through that book, and I want to encourage you to be reading through it. All right? All right.